Pride Institute is an LGBTQ-specific treatment center for substance use disorder and addiction. Pride was first opened in 1986 as a direct response to the HIV-AIDS pandemic. We provide care to adults 18-plus in residential and outpatient settings. I'm Luke. And I'm Kaylee. And together, we are the co-hosts of the Proud Voices podcast for Pride Institute. All right. Hello, everyone. We are back today with David. David, thanks for, so much for joining us today. You bet. All right. So I'll just jump right in. Uh, David, what led you to Pride's Doors initially? We'll get into my story a little bit, but I had a, an alcohol problem. Um, I'd done outpatient treatment um, as well as inpatient treatment at other facilities. Um, I was led to Pride just because I, it was a good fit for me. I thought it would be the, a good environment to kind of lead me on some of the steps I needed to take. Um, since graduating, um, eventually, I found sobriety. Um, about three, I've been sober three and a half years. Um, thank you. And uh, but I wanted to I wanted to maintain touch with with Pride through some of the outpatient discussions, as well as bringing the I used to be involved with bringing the AA groups there and such. So, nice. and so um, you mentioned three and a half years of sobriety. So I think I, I, you know not a mathematician here, but it sounds like you've been sober since like around 2018. Yes, okay. April 9th. Nice, congratulations. And so, um, what were some strategies, I guess, right away, um, early on after treatment that you did to maintain your sobriety? Um, probably the biggest strategy I, I took first was um, believing all the crap that I heard. Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, you go to enough meetings, you go to, I, I, at last count, nine treatment inpatients for me before things kind of clicked. Um, and, you know, all the little things that you hear. Um, when I got out the last time, um, I did the 90 and 90. Um, and I sat through probably most of them were step meetings. And although, yeah, you walk in the room and you go, oh, not another step four talk, I can't handle it. Mm -hmm. But you pick up little things. And truly, I believe how I got through this is I learned how those steps work for me. That how somebody else interprets the steps, how the words that they hear and the words that they use may not work for them. But if I pick up enough little things, all of a sudden the first step is going to click. And it's like, yes, that's how... That's how I interpret it for me. That's how it's actually going to work for me. That's how I'm going to get to step two. And I um, think that's amazing too, because I think so many people live like a motto off of like, do what's been done before you or like do what the person in front of you did. And it's so important, I think, in recovery to find what works for you because there's so many different methods and ways people can do it. But if you're just doing something and your heart's not in it and it's not tailored to you, how's it going to work? And I think that was a big battle for me at first was that I would go to a meeting and I would hear something that if it didn't click, I would immediately put up a wall mm -hmm. and say that, okay, I didn't like how that sounded. Step three is not for me. Mm -hmm. Or I didn't like how that sounded. I'm not going to take any of this approaches where if you listen to the whole thing, you're going to get those bits and pieces. And it's kind of the same approach I take with if I have a sponsee and I'm talking, I was like, you know, my story is not going to work exactly for you. Mm -hmm. But if I can lead you to the places that get you to be able to put the, put the pieces together that fit to make your recovery work, then that's where we need to go. Mm -hmm. And had you, um, how did you hear about Pride? Do you, are you from this area? Um, I originally heard about it just through, um, I did two treatments at another facility first. Um, and when I relapsed again, they suggested I find someplace else <laughs> that may fit me better. And I knew I had heard about Pride through them initially. Um, and so it seemed to be a, a very appropriate natural next fit for me. Mm -hmm. And how ethical of um, organizations to do that too. Um, we find ourselves having to do that sometimes too, where if we keep having repeat people come to our doors, it's like, well, let's help you find somewhere 
you know, that may be a better fit for you. Yeah, and again, maybe I've taken all the little tidbits I can from that first group, and yeah. I need to hear something from somebody else, a different approach or a different strategy. Yeah, yeah I mean, even trying it nine times as you did, um, something, you know, stuck the last time. Did it, is it anything specific that stuck the last time or just the combination of everything you learned? Oh, yeah, I wish I had that answer. Yeah. Um, that's <laughs> the one thing that I've asked because people had seen me um, – so down and so low. And I think there was times where people figured I would never get out. Um, and other people that I'm, friends that I've made along the way that are still struggling, they look at me and say, okay, what clicked? You weren't necessarily the guy I was gonna pick that was gonna be the success mm -hmm. at times because they saw me so low and it's like, I really don't know. Um, yeah, I, again, I, when I stepped out of there, I was, it was maybe it was just the time for me, and you know we never know when that's gonna when that's gonna hit, and when when you're gonna grab on to, to what you need to. Like, I don't know when I when I give my talks, I kind of discuss, you know, I hate, I hate treatment through cliche, because so many of the times you hear these little sayings that are, and the person says them and they smile at you like, okay, that rhymed, so it must it must work for you. <laughs> it's like no, I I'm kind of the anti cliche guy, and you know the old saying that. You know, the definition of insanity is trying the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome. For me, it would have been insane for me to stop trying. I had to try and try and try. So I had to try the same thing over and over again until I got that different outcome. If I would have just, if I would have just accepted that, for me, insanity would have been stop trying. My, that would have been the def definition of insanity to me would be not to try that thing over and over again. So I just kept trying it over and over again until um, things clicked for me. Well, that's part of the process too, I think, in, in getting sober and being in recovery is failing. That's just a part of it. Yeah. Everybody experiences yeah. that. Relapse is a part of recovery and it's mm -hmm. not anything to be ashamed about. It's just something that we, that we deal with. You know, we talk about the humility that it takes to walk into your first meeting or your first treatment. And we remember how low we were and how down we were. And you know, and you walk in saying, oh, I can't do this, this isn't for me. To me, I think it was much more humbling to walk back in. That if you were in a meetings, if you were in getting to know people, and then you had that relapse, um, and then you had to turn around and walk in and say, I'm back. Whether that's at a treatment center, whether that's at an AA meeting, whether that's at whatever, um, whatever you're using, to help you get through that humility that it takes to walk in and face the people again, thinking you're going to be judged, thinking that people are going to look down on you when it's always the exact opposite. You walk back in and you're welcome. They're always glad you're there. You know, I kind of use the example that if, you know, if I'm at a meeting to help me to stop from robbing houses, you know, if I go in and say, yep, it's been a good weekend. Everybody's happy. If I walk in and said, well, sorry, I robbed houses all weekend. They're going to look at me like, why are you here? You lose or get away. But if I walk in and say, you know what, I relapsed this weekend, but I'm here now, all you're going to get is welcomed and acceptance and help. And that's, 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 that's what you have to learn to get through this. And that's, what I, that's one of the things I learned is that no matter what steps I took to get there, once I was there, I was accepted and a part of a group of people who struggled the same way I did. When you went to treatment the first time, do you, were you resistant to going? Uh, well, it was pretty well mandated. Um, I was working, um, I was a medical professional. I was working um, with, despite the life of drinking continually until I was 
blackout drunk every night. Um, it got to the point where it was seemed okay to um, have a drink in the morning so my hand wasn't shaking by noon and to have a drink at lunch so I could keep working through the afternoon um, until my body, I was at work one afternoon and my body just collapsed. I fell to the floor, I was unconscious, not like passed out drunk. My body just gave up. It was smarter than my brain. <laughs> and um, once they recessed me, got me to the hospital, uh, my blood alcohol was well above the legal limit at noon at work. Um, and with that, I lost my license. I got released from my job. I got all my medical privileges taken away. Um, and so I was kind of mandated to get into treatment. And it was one of those cases where, hey, David, if you can do this, if you can get through this, we're going to put you right back in. That, was, that wasn't my story. Yeah. Um, it took a long time for me to get to where I could get back to what I was. And when did you, and maybe you can't identify this, but when did you notice that your drinking started to really escalate? For me, it was a very slow process. And drinking was always um, my friend. I mean, from back in, you know, when I was 13 and my first drinks, you know, I got wasted with my older brother and I thought, boy, I'm going to get in trouble. And all I got was accepted and welcomed. My family said, hey, that's great. You were 13 years old. And you kept up drink for drink with your brother, 10 years older than you. Good job. And to me, so immediately alcohol was, boy, I just kind of got accepted more into my family because my dad was the guy who always had a drink in his hand. I never saw him wasted drunk. He never got in trouble. He was completely functional alcoholic. But that's what that's what I saw. That's what I idolized. And, you know, my parents kind of got divorced when I was very young. So I lived mostly with my mom in a good, stable household. And I lived with my dad in a good, stable household part of the time. But he was that guy I kind of looked up to. And so to me, the life of a man was to have a house, have a job, have the bar room in your house that was a party room and always have a drink in your hand. Um, so drinking kind of made me feel accepted and being an outcast kind of nerd in high school. Um, not just because I was gay, but because it was I was just a nerd. Um, I didn't have friends. I wasn't accepted. I got to college and all of a sudden drinking helped me get accepted. And I went from being the person without any friends, the outcast in high school, to kind of the leader of a big group of huge friends um, in college. And a lot of that was because of drinking. And I can kind of see how drinking each step of my life, boy, I, I can overcome being, I was, um, I was in the army during the don't ask, don't tell, and the complete, um, you know, you can't even, you can't even, you can't even ask, you can't even think about being gay at times. And drinking helped me get through that. And once I was out and started to come out as, as a gay man, drinking helped me with that. So all these steps of the way, drinking kind of helped. And I really, in my mid to late 40s, I had a life I wanted. I had an awesome job. I had a husband. Um, I had the house I wanted. I had tons of friends. And I lived the party life very hard. And it just kept creeping up. I could look back over every five years where my drinking changed and it got worse and it got worse. And all of a sudden, it seemed to just take over um, to the point where, you know, everything escalated where I pretty much lost everything. Um, and, you know, if you ask me the date where, you know, my ex-husband was tired of me drinking and needed to leave, I don't know. And if you ask me the argument that, that happened, I don't know, because I probably don't remember. Um, but it just kind of continued to escalate. But in my mind, I compensated. And that was that was all appropriate. Everything I was doing was okay because I was maintaining the job. I was out there doing the work every day despite how dangerous it could have been. Um, and when it all crashed, it, it crashed hard, but it it didn't crash enough for me to say, yep, 
that's my last drink yet. I had to crash over and over again um, until I got to that point. I, I kind of kid people talking about, you know, we have our bottoms. When you hit bottom, that's where you go up. My bottom, I think, was a trampoline because <laughs> I would hit it and I would bounce up a little bit. And then that was fun. And so the next time the bottom dropped a little bit worse, a little bit lower, and I hit it again. And either at some point I was going to be able to grab the top of that cliff and not hit the bottom again, or the, the trampoline was going to bust. Um, and I was, you know, was going to die. Um, I had good friends that probably kept me alive. Um, you know, any cliche about how bad people get when they were drinking, I was at. I was the guy who was sitting in the chair with bottles all around him. I was the guy with three, three months of mail piled up on the table because they didn't have the energy to go pick it up. I was a guy who probably ate some days and probably showered some weeks. And, you know, to go from where I was to that and still say, I need to figure out how to get a bottle today um, was, you know, there was no rapid crash. It was just such a slow, continuous slide up and then and then that downwards that I, it, I just, I, I was happy in my wallowing in it for a while. Yeah, slow and then all at once. And I would try to go in and I would be in treatment and I would have the full, yes, I'm gonna do this, yes, I got this. And then I'd walk out and I remember my roommate once telling me, you know, we were gonna give you, you know, the most you've made is 26 days, we were gonna give you till August 8th. And at one of the time I came on and, you know, you could, you could look at him and say, God, what an asshole for saying that. But he was absolutely true. And I probably was there. I was probably drinking before then. So I, I like how you brought that up, because I think when people look at alcoholics or um, addicts, they just think of all the negatives and they're like, how can't they see, you know, like we, we all know that there's addicts. We all know there's alcoholics, but there are benefits to using drugs. There's benefits to like drinking alcohol. And it's appeasing anxiety and silencing those voices within ourselves, which it sounds like from your experience in high school and growing up and wanting to feel accepted and a part of a community, that that was like your answer to fitting in. It was the thing that solved all your problems momentarily. Um, it truly, alcohol became my personality. Mm -hmm. um, I would guess for the last 10 years I was drinking, I didn't get a birthday gift, a card, a Christmas present that didn't have well that wasn't related to my drinking it was always a bottle of wine when somebody came to the house it was always a plaque for my bar room and i have the huge man cave that i built as my shrine to my drinking at home um people would, that's all people would give me because that was my identity so when i had to give up drinking i just didn't give up the bottle i had to give up me i had to give up what made me what i was in my brain that's what i thought made me what i was and i had to give up that personality and you know you have the friends that you lose because you do terrible things when you're drinking and then you have the friends you lose when you stop drinking mm -hmm. because there are people that are your friends when you're pouring and they're not your friends when you're not um and so to say just give up the bottle it was way more i had to give up everything to get to where i could get something yeah, I mean, eventually it becomes a lifestyle, mm -hmm. waking up and drinking, and yeah. like you said, yeah. There was a really funny skit on SNL recently, and it was A.D. Bryant, and they did the same thing. I love that. They all brought her a <laughs> bottle of wine, and so she had a group of like, there was probably like six or seven women, and they were all having a girls' night. <laughs> she opens a gift, it's a bottle of wine, she's like, oh, okay, and then she opens another gift bottle line and they're just like what are you all trying to tell me <laughs> and then she starts opening plaques and they give her those little signs that you hang in your wall one of those signs was yes i lied to my sponsor <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 So you said that, i immediately my brain went yep. to that. but 
I also want to touch on, you mentioned um, that you're a medical professional. Yes. Um, so I wonder if you can talk about that, because I think there's a lot of people who we've spoken with who, um, you know, one of our last guests was um, a nurse. And I wonder if your use had anything to do with that, because I think that profession is extremely stressful. And so did you use alcohol as a way to combat that stress at all? Or was it just... I, you know, probably... I hate to say this kind of stuff, but I was a guy who never had to study in college. I was a guy who ran through med school. Um, every step of the way, I got what I wanted. I mean, I was I was gifted with some brains. I was gifted with the knowledge on how to use them. Um, I was gifted with how to interact with people. Um, you know, so having to worry about applying for the next job, I never did. And so, you know, worrying about the stress at work, I dealt with it. I was the kind of guy who could deal with everything. I could... I could be the guy in charge and manage everything except myself. And, you know, so I could run, I could run my staff. I could run the clinic. I could run the wards in the hospital. Um, but I couldn't take care of what my brain did, you know, the second I walked out the door. And so potentially it was a stress re reliever. And maybe that was my little break from having everything coming down on me and all the stress coming at me. Because I was the guy who, who took everything in. If there was a job I wouldn't delegate it, I would make sure it got done. And I did that, added everything on. And, and I truly, I could see that slipping in work at, at the end mm -hmm. where I started to say, hey, I'm going to give up this job. I'm going to give up this responsibility. I'm going to give up this title because I've had it for longer than anybody in my company's had this title. It's time for somebody else to take over. But in my mind, I knew that I would just wasn't able to be what I was. And so it sounds like you obviously had a leadership role or you were in mm -hmm. charge of different people. Were you ever in... Um, patient facing when you were at your worst or at one of your bottoms? Uh, yes. I mean, like I said, I don't remember when I started to think it was okay to have a drink on call, mm -hmm. um, but I knew I felt better. Mm -hmm. So I did it once. And once you do it once, it, it's your norm. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and I, like, I, I don't remember the day that I thought it was okay to have um, to mix a drink before going to work. So I didn't start shaking at the end of the day. I thought that was normal. Um, in my mind, that was completely acceptable. Right. Um, think, you know, I talk to people about, you know, my, my, my crash at work and they say, oh, that's terrible. It had to happen. No, it was probably perfect that it happened because if my body hadn't given out, what mistake could I have made? Mm -hmm. You know, I, one day I it was a beautiful day and I went to the park with a bottle and I sat in the car and had, wanted to drink a little bit because just the first nice day of spring. And I got blackout drunk and crashed my car in the park. And people say, oh, my God, that was terrible that happened. And it's like, maybe, no, it's, maybe it was an awesome thing that it happened. Because I crashed my car in a parking lot instead of crashing it on the road and killing people or kill, having people with me. Um, you know, so each of the little tragedies, you know, maybe, you know, my husband left me. Oh, my God, that's terrible. Maybe his life is so much better mm -hmm. because he got out of that. You know, so all these things could have been tragedies. But if you look at them, boy, thank God, thank God it happened that way. Thank God I didn't have anybody that I hurt at work. Mm -hmm. Thank God I didn't have anybody hurt with my car. I need to start thinking like you. Yeah, that's such a good perspective. <laughs> Just so positive about everything that but, happened. It, yeah, I mean, I, you could sit back and say, you know, damn it that this happened. Yeah. But, you know, thank thank God my body crashed at work and I didn't mess up um, doing a procedure on on a patient. And we really are in charge of our emotions and the way we do think. I mean given some circumstances, you know, life is really yeah. hard and difficult sometimes, but I think that is the one thing that like, I know that I can work on is just being more positive and reframing the way I think about things. Because when I, you know, a slight inconvenience, I'm like, oh my God, you know, like whatever. But it's like, 
it does that, I mean, just reshape your mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I, if I, if you're at a meeting and you hear that person who's a, if it wasn't for that one cop, I wouldn't be here at all. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, you would have killed somebody the next night. Mm-hmm. You know, thank God that cop was there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it is how you have to frame it. And a lot, a lot of that was, was part of it. I have a younger sister in treatment or in recovery and um, she's got a few years on me. And at one point I said, yeah, all, all this shit's my fault. You know, I brought it all on myself. And she looks at me, she goes, oh my, thank God. Because last time I talked to you, all you did was just complain and blame everybody else. And if you're sitting there blaming everyone, then you're not taking responsibility. And then how are you gonna how are you gonna how are you gonna get over something like this if you're not taking responsibility for what you're doing? So how do you deal with how do you reframe negative when negative things come up when you are triggered or you know want to use today or maybe you don't? How do you well, reframe that? This sounds really goofy, but one of the things I tried to do is I would like start the day identifying who wouldn't make me drink today. And I could get up today and say, you know what, nobody on the road today is going to make me want to take a drink. And I stuck with that all day. And then if the next day if it was, you know, maybe my my roommate's not going to do anything to me today that's going to make me want to drink. Nobody at work today is going to piss me off so much I'm going to need to drink. My best friend's not going to say those things that he knows will drive me crazy. But today, you know what? It's not going to be enough to make me want to drink. And if, if those add up, you're doing all right. You know, I'm not truly worried about big things in life. You know, the big things will come and go and you have to deal with them. And this may be not coincidental at all, but the last drink I had was two days after my dad's funeral. Um, and I had to be drunk the whole time at the funeral and the wake services because if not, I would have started going into shakes, dry heaves, and maybe seizures because I've done all that when I've tried to quit drinking. So I had to drink the whole time, and I got back, and that was my last time. And any big thing, you know, I've lost a dear pet. I've lost family members. I've lost friends. I've spent an eternity trying to get jobs back, which, thank God, I'm back successful. Um, but, you know, all those things never led me to drink. What I worry about is I'm not sure what we can say here on, but I worry about the fuck it moments. Mm-hmm. That when I'm just doing something and I say, oh, fuck it, I could just do that. That's, the, that's what I worry about. Mm-hmm. And that's what, real, that's what I have to keep in mind. If, if something terrible happens at work today, it's not going to make me drink. It's that one little goofy thing that, oh, I need a Coke, and the only place that's open is the liquor store next door. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to walk in and say, yeah, and grab something. That's what I worry about more. You mentioned that you were fortunate to um, have another position, another medical position. Um, can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. What are you doing today? Um, yeah. I, uh, as I said, I had my license suspended because I was practicing under the influence. Um, and they have a, a pretty rigorous standard to get your license back. You have to be monitored for, monitored for a certain period of time. You have to show sobriety. You have to be on the color wheel and all that. Um, but for my own self um self-respect, self-determination. I truly made myself be um, sober a year and a half before I ever even applied to get my license back because I I didn't want to start the process and then have it be one of my two-month relapses. So once I got that established, I could go through the process of starting to uh, apply for my license, and then I started looking for work. Um, I wasn't going to be able to go back to a lot of the things I did because if you're out of it for a couple of years, you really lose kind of touch. And you lose the ability. But I knew I was um, successful as a, as a leader, administrator. I knew I had good um, patient interactions. I had good skills working with people. So um, I looked for a lot of places, but I mainly looked in the addiction field. Um, and currently, I'm a medical director at um, a recovery 
group uh, within the area. And um, yeah, so things clicked into place. You know, I've had several different types of medical careers over my time, and this is just the next step for me. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a perfect fit. Is this the first time that you've been a medical director in the field of behavioral health? Yes. Nice. And how does that feel coming full circle now that you're sober and kind of been through something similar yourself? It's 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 very satisfying. And it's almost hard to hold back when you're talking to a client because you want to say, yeah, I've been there, <laughs> you know, because, you know, but you don't want to, you know, you want to show that you have the empathy. You want to show that you have the knowledge, um, but not necessarily, you know, that deep down experience. But I think they get it. I mean, I've been through enough treatments where you you're working with somebody who's there diligently trying to help you without any true knowledge. And you look at them differently and they may, they may be just as capable of helping you as anyone else. Mm -hmm. But if you can see in that little sparkle in somebody's eye that, yep, I've been there, buddy, yep. um, that helps you. And they could look at you and say, wow, he, he's here. And I do, you know, if you've been through enough treatment centers and enough outpatients, I'm meeting people that I've met before. And, you know, we don't shy away. It's like, yeah, you can do this. You saw me down here. Now, hopefully, I'm, I'm up here and uh, not, just, not just out making a living, but actually helping people and, and potentially making some differences and giving people those little tidbits mm -hmm. that if I'm sitting with you for a half hour and there's four words that might click with you, man, that's, that's worth it. I mean, that's why we do this. We have an alumni association where we bring, you know, alumni and clients together. And that's why we do that is just to create that. You can do this. Look at me. I'm here. You can do it, too. And it's that that community that um, those, you know, good role models in, in recovery that really let people know that this is possible. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's such, just such, I feel like um, alcoholics and addicts, they just feel so lonely. Mm -hmm. And so getting in a space where somebody has been through something. Yeah that you've been through is just so vital and important in the process. And that there is another side, you know, there is, there is a next chapter and I'm not, I'm not a young guy. And so to start a new chapter when I'm over 55 um, and to start completely over is tough, but you know what, I've done tough things before. So why not just, why not do this and run with it? We can do hard things. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here. With you bet. Us today. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Proud Voices. You can find us where you find all your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to follow and subscribe. And we'll see you next time.